I grew up listening to stories of rivers. In the stories, humans confronted the rivers. In the stories, the river always won. In my childhood, the rivers were the Mississippi River and its tributaries. I grew up in Michigan, but my father's father's family was from the town of Greenville, Mississippi. The Greenville of my grandfather's childhood was located on the ancient floodplain behind the earthen levee meant to hold the Mississippi River back. The Mississippi River could swallow boats. It would swallow small boys. And when my grandfather was about nine years old, it swallowed the entire town of Greenville. Houses floated downriver. Cows were strangled on their ropes as the river pulled them away. Many hundreds of people drowned. The town was never the same afterward. The Great Flood, which occurred in 1927, was the sort of disaster that seemed to demand an explanation. The explanation depended on who was telling the story. One version blamed gentlemen from Arkansas, Mississippi's cross-river neighbor to the west. If the levee holding back the river on the Mississippi side were to break, the water would inundate Mississippi and spare Arkansas, which is just what happened during the Great Flood. Hence, some say, with no evidence whatsoever, that a group of gentlemen from Arkansas took their boats across the river and used dynamite to blow a hole in the levee and flood Greenville. In other versions, the flood was brought forth as the punishment of an angry god. Floodwaters and plagues have been among the favorite tools of vengeful gods, going back to the earliest recorded Sumerian stories. In the version of the story I remember hearing most often, the water simply got too high and eventually began to make the levee bubble and then liquefy. In some of the retellings, my grandfather was the boy who spotted the place where the levee began to liquefy and notified people in town. The truest story about the flood of Greenville is that it was caused by human attempts to control the river. It is in the nature of rivers to meander beyond their banks, carving new courses across the landscape. But a meandering river was and is ill-suited for houses, let alone cities, built near the river. It was and is ill-suited for big ports built along the river. In the years leading up to the Great Flood, the people living along the river spent inordinate amounts of money building levees to keep the river from meandering. The course of the river, previously governed by time, physics, and chance, was made artificial. It would be said that it was tamed, controlled, and even civilized so as to allow cities to grow and wealth to accumulate. The taming of the river was carried out with a sense of pride and, at times, hubris. It was the hubris associated with the belief in the ability of humans to take nature and bend it to a more human design. For millions of years, the Mississippi spilled over its banks each year, flooding the flat plains alongside the river, and it meandered, moving this way and that, creating new habitat and even new land as it did. As Amitav Ghosh noted in The Great Derangement about the Bengal Delta, the flow of water and silt was such that geological processes that usually unfold in deep time appeared to occur at a speed where they could be followed from week to week and month to month. The geography of Louisiana, for instance, is the consequence of the river's ancient movements. The state is the mouth of the river that drains a continent. Trees evolved to rely on the floods and movements of the rivers, as did grasses. Fish relied on this swamping exuberance of water as part of their natural cycle of life and death. Native Americans along the Mississippi timed their farming, 
foraging, and ceremonies to these cycles and built settlements on ground high enough to escape the water when necessary. Nature and Native Americans alike responded to the river by working with it, taking advantage of its inevitable seasons and episodes. But the large-scale commercial transport along the Mississippi that fed early industrialization could not wait on nature and could not be bothered with its seasons or chronic movements. The early days of American industrialization required that boats travel on regular schedules and that cities, the ultimate destinations of the boat's goods, be as close as possible to the river. Industrialization required the river to be consistent, not just predictable. Attempts to make the river consistent were attempts to make the river part of the broader realm of human control. Its banks were talked about as though they were analogous to pipes through which water flowed and could be redirected, slowed, sped up, or even stopped. The consequences of this view of the river were many. The consequences flooded my grandfather's home. The river was still wild. The river is still wild. Regardless of our interventions, the river, as the poet A.R. Ammons put it, will go on with the ongoing. Even now that it is even more restrained, the Mississippi River will continue every so often to eat boats, small boys, and farms. It will flood towns, and we will be somehow surprised when it does. These floods will grow worse because of climate change. The river's predations are a reminder that nature will devour human attempts to escape, combat, or dominate nature. In this, the Mississippi River is like the river of life, of which we are part. Our attempts to control the Mississippi are a metaphor for our attempts to control nature in general, but especially for our attempts to control life. <laughs>